All right, well, we continue in our study entitled The Kingdom of Heaven, and we find ourselves in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. As Jesus Christ came his first time, one of the first statements that he made was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the Jewish mind who heard that, they would have believed that Jesus was announcing the coming of the Messiah, still not recognizing Him to be that Messiah, believing that the Messiah who were to come would take and establish a throne in and through Israel over the entire world. And that Israel would be the infrastructure for this eternal kingdom that the Messiah would usher in. And therefore, anyone in places of prominence during this particular time would have had assumed that they would have occupied a position of prominence and prestige in the kingdom of heaven. However, though, we discover quickly in reading the Gospels that Jesus' idea of the kingdom of heaven was much different than those who listened to the religious leaders, who allowed their distortion of the Old Testament to permeate their personal opinion of the coming Messiah. And when Jesus finally did come and began to establish the kingdom of heaven, the religious leaders were furious because he did not seek their approval. He also did not uh, correlate the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven with the religious leaders, but he went to the common people of Israel to announce and to declare its beginning and also to let them know that they could be a participant within the kingdom of heaven outside of the Jewish leaders. Today, our Christianity is formed by our understanding of the kingdom of heaven. Today we have Americanized Christianity just like we've Americanized every other thing that has uh, come through our culture. I was reading an article just the other day where individuals uh, 25 and uh, younger believed that pizza was an American food. Oh, have we fallen and how great we have fallen. It is interesting that unless we have a clear understanding of what Jesus intended the kingdom of heaven to look like, we won't have a real idea and understanding of what being a Christian in our culture looks like. And he begins by dealing with the attitude in those who would find happiness in the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And then he announces in verses 13 and 14 our responsibility as one who is in the kingdom of God that we are to be salt and light onto this world. But that salt can lose its saltiness. That light can be diminished by our resembling the world more than reflecting the glory of our God. So Jesus needed to next establish the righteous standard that is required for one to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is a standard that is unattainable to each and every one of us here. In fact, the standard puts us in a hopeless position before God because none of us in and of ourselves are capable of reaching this standard. 
But notice that he says very clearly that unless our standard, unless our righteousness, excuse me, verse 20 of chapter 5, for I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have sent shockwaves through his audience. It would have caused the religious leaders to stand on edge. Jesus is now going to announce that the righteous standard that is required for entering into the kingdom of God is none other than perfection. Now, in our culture, we don't use the word righteousness as often as they did in Judaism. In fact, in the 1980s, the word righteousness was confined to a saying, he was a righteous dude. But today, the word righteousness means exactly what it did then, and that is a right standing before someone else. So our righteousness can be a right standing before God or a right standing before each other, meaning that we have reached that moral standard that God has required for us to enter into the kingdom of God. But let us know that that standard is none other than perfection. Notice in verse 48, if you will, of the same chapter. He says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Christianity is not about outward conformity. It's about inward transformation. The law was incapable of changing a person's heart. And that's truly what God seeks from you and I, is our heart. He isn't simply concerned about us conforming to rules in which He has laid down for us. He wants our heart. But the only way that our heart can respond to Him in the necessary manner in which He requires is if we are given a new heart. That is the crux of the entire new covenant that Jesus came to establish. That new covenant that replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Something that we cannot do for ourselves. Allowing us, therefore, in the new birth through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, allowing us to reach that righteous standard that He has set in place for us. Now, positionally in Christ, that righteous standard has already been obtained. This way, we can have fellowship with God, because as God the Father sees us positionally, theologically, positionally before God, He sees us through Christ, and through Christ, we appear perfect before God the Father. Unfortunately, there's another side to that, and that's the practical, which none of us have reached perfection yet. None of us. We're still works in progress, aren't we? God is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ by transforming us through the renewing of our mind. This is why God has called each and every one of us to give each other a lot of grace as we grow and become the men and women that God has called us to be. But we are all works in progress. 
we're all moving in that same direction, some faster than others, some slower than others. But the work that God has begun in us, He is faithful to complete. Unfortunately, when we talk about righteousness in America, we never use a proper standard to determine our righteousness. When we try to qualify our righteousness before God, we often find people that we know that we uh, have lived better than, for example, Adolf Hitler, you know. We try to lower the standard as far as we possibly can to allow ourselves to justify in our mind that we are okay before God. And in a society that believes that we're all inherently good people, and ultimately God will accept everyone because God is a God of love, we therefore no longer concern ourselves with the righteous standard that God requires of us. But the most righteous individuals during the time of Jesus' first coming would have been none other than the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, not just a little bit better than theirs, but exceeds theirs tremendously, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So now at this point you may be saying, well, who could ever obtain that status? If the standard isn't Adolf Hitler, then who is the standard? And that is Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, we all fall far short. I've always wanted to do that. I'm emphasizing the Greek there. Of the glory of God. And therefore, we are all in need of a Savior. Regardless of how the world looks at us, God looks at us through His integrity his holiness, and his righteousness. And as a result of that, we all, far very, we all fall very short of the perfection that Christ has deemed for us. To establish this righteous standard, then Jesus leads us through various illustrations on how the righteousness of the individual must succeed that of the common learning of the religious leaders of that day. And he looks at He looks at murder. He looks at adultery. He looks at marriage. And now we begin in verse 33 as he continues and looks to clarify the taking of an oath. In verse 33, he he states, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, meaning established in the Old Testament, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. The Old Testament allowed for one to take an oath to God to validate or to confirm or to uh, ensure his promise in which he is about to make. But Jesus says the standard for you and I is much higher than that. He says we have no right to swear by anything because we have no authority over those things that we choose to swear by, including ourselves. But simply, for one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, let our yes be yes and our no be no. We should be known for our integrity. We should be known for our word. That if we promise something to someone, we will fulfill it. Because we have made that promise to that individual. 
he continues by saying, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor swear by your head, because even you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus never taught in youth group. Um, you gray very quickly uh, in that. But let, <laughs> did I hear an amen? Uh, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever more than that of these is from the evil one. We as Christians need to always be careful about what we say. Not only choosing the words carefully, knowing the viciousness of the tongue in which we carry that James articulates very clearly for us, demonstrating it's one of the hardest muscles for a person to control, and that's absolutely true, isn't it? With the same mouth, we can bless God and curse our fellow brother or sister in Christ. With the same mouth, we can uh, use words edifying unto God, and we can use words that are destructive to the person next to us. Jesus wants us, and the Bible has always encouraged us and commanded us to be men and women of our word. The psalmist even writes that we should be men and women of our word even to the point in which it hurts. And what the psalmist meant by that is that even if the conditions of the promise change and it's no longer working in our favor, we are still committed to fulfill it. So our yes may be yes and that our no may be no. By the time the religious leaders had educated the people and during the time of Jesus' first coming, they made, ha- they made a system so complex of oath-taking that if you said an oath and then made an oath to God the Father, you were then committed to keep that oath. But anything less than God the Father, if it was by Jerusalem or by heaven or by uh, your head or whatever it is, it- it's a oath that was more loosely taken and lightly committed to, and if you violated it and didn't fulfill it, well, it wasn't nearly as great of concern. And again, this is the way the religious leaders approached much of the law. They made greater uh, degrees of intensity for one area of it and not the other, allowing for various loopholes to be found by individuals committing an oath. A person in that culture was known by their reputation. You couldn't go online and look at their credit history. You couldn't go online and discover if they had been prosecuted for cheating or financial embezzlement. You had no way of knowing the character of a person other by the word that they gave you and the oath in which they made. So Jesus asking us, to be men and women of our word, yes being yes, no being no, is demonstrating that he's not only concerned with what we promise and how we promise, but our integrity, our character. We should allow our reputation to precede us by allowing individuals to know that in past dealings, we have dealt honorably within those deals. Of course, we have 
similar practices today. When you apply for a job, you ask for a reference letter. And depending on how much you pay for that reference letter, depending on how well they speak of you, I charge about 20 bucks. I'm kidding. But Jesus here is stating that he wanted each and every person who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven to be men and women of our word. Paul picked up on this in 2 Corinthians. He said, I'm not going to promise to come to you, but I'll let my yes be yes or no be no, and I won't promise either because I don't know what the will of God is. So I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say yes because I couldn't know for sure I'm going to fulfill either one. And James, of course, articulated this even clearer when he wrote, Above all, he says, My brethren, do not swear neither by heaven nor by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, lest you fall into temptation. When Jesus came to rebuke the religious leaders, in Matthew chapter 23, listen to these words. He says to them directly, he says, woe to you, your blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, well, he is obligated to perform it. Fools, you're blind. For which is greater, the gold of the temple that, sacri- uh, that sacrifices the gold, um, and whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that the, author, the gift is sacrificed upon. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. And those who swear by the temple swear by it and by whom dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven shall swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. The religious leaders consistently try to lower the standard. And the reason they consistently tried to lower the standards is because they themselves realized they could not live to the standard of the law. But it was imperative that the people saw that they did. And Jesus is now exposing that hypocrisy and saying that it is an impossibility leading you to need a Savior. Not one who not only cleanses us of our sins, but also robes us in the righteousness of Christ. So each person listening there would have seen that the religious leaders once again had fallen short of the glory of God. In verse 38, he continues and he says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was the cornerstone of their entire judicial process in Israel. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the others to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, well, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, Go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Jesus knew that this standard of the law 
had become the architect of the entire judicial system and understanding of consequence and retaliation. Of course, it was given in the Old Testament for the purpose of regulating the punishment to fit the crime. He wanted them to be equally in portion with one another, meaning that the consequences, I mean, are, are clearly in line with the degree of the crime. But now Jesus is saying that instead of that being the automatic go-to standard for one who is in the kingdom of heaven, I am asking you to go one step farther. And though Jesus said these things primarily for shock value, the root and the understanding of what he was trying to say or stated is clear to those who would have been listening. That he wants us to go one step further. That I don't automatically have to uh, fall back on an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. I can forgive. For example, we know that the Bible allows for divorce in an adulterous relationship between a husband and a wife. Does that mean that the process of forgiving and allowing that marriage to be healed and restored is out of the question? Am I automatically forced to a divorce due to adultery? Or can I allow God to work? And that's what he is trying to indicate here. That one in the kingdom of heaven should look for the higher road in all things. The word resist there, an evil person, is a word that may give you the initial impression of one who is simply trying to self-defend himself. But in actuality... It is a legal term that was used in that culture, represented by the Greek, showing that one is not to resist through the courts of law. So if someone insults you, and that is the illustration that Jesus uses about being slapped on the right cheek, it was a backhanded slap that would have been more of an insult than an assault that could have been brought to court, and one could have won damages for being insulted in that way, Jesus says, turn the other to him also. When it came to you, the cloak and the tunic. A tunic was the undergarment that one wore in that culture. Jesus says, Take your, let them have your cloak also. Turning on its, on its head, one from who would be um, the appeared victor by taking what another has, to showing that giving is superior to that of taking. See, the cloak could not be taken in that culture through one suing another. The cloak was needed for, it was considered a necessity of life to keep one warm during the night. In fact, if the cloak was taken during the day, according to the Old Testament law, it needed to be returned by night. But Jesus says, give it to them. Now, he isn't redefining the governmental law of the uh, nation of Israel. What he is redefining is the manner in which you and I respond to one who has wronged us. This is where I struggle. I have to be honest. I, I wish I could say that I have learned this lesson and ha- don't retaliate when I'm wronged. 
But again, I was quickly uh, reminded of how far I still have yet to go when I was in the drive-thru at McDonald's getting my morning coffee. And I always get behind the person who seems to order so much that they not only forget what they order, but then they're sure that they're missing something once they receive their order. And their order wasn't fully complete yet. And I just ordered a simple cup of coffee. So the person, the uh, employee of McDonald's, asked the person to go park in one of the waiting parking spots for their order to be ready. Well, I guess they didn't fully understand those instructions, so they pulled up five feet. And not only could I not get my coffee, but I couldn't even get to the window to receive my coffee, and already this guy's irritating me, and I haven't even had my coffee yet. So I just gently tapped on the horn, you know, just a a friendly tap, (laughs) you know. And the person looked back at me and started heralding all of every single one of those words that have been prohibited to children ever since the dawn of time. They They stuck their hand out and pointed upwards with one very particular finger. And I couldn't understand it. So I responded like any good Christian would. I beeped the horn again and said, pull up. I can't get around you. I haven't even had my coffee yet. All right. And you're already annoying me. Hey, I'm still in the sanctifying process. I haven't arrived yet. So don't get me too fired up. And they wouldn't move. And then he receives his order. And you know what? <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, real, a real tough guy too. His uh, um, it, his license plate was my girl, and it had a, a picture of this little floofy dog in a purse with a collar of rhinestones around their neck. I'm like, oh, this is a real tough guy. I blew my horn just because of the license plate. You know, this is Chicago, pal. You know. And he wouldn't pull up. Then he gets his order and he checks every single one. And I'm like, Lord, I pray for his salvation because he's soon going to meet you. You know, I wish that I could say that I have arrived, but I haven't. And I once again am quickly reminded that retaliation is the natural actions of the fallen nature. And then I'm reminded that God has often called us to act above the natural reactions of the fallen nature. God has asked us to resist the natural um, attractions of the fallen nature and to exercise them in the prescribed manner of Scripture. I'm quickly reminded that it is not by my ability that this righteous standard will ever be obtained Only through the righteousness of Christ may I stand perfected before the Father. And though I am still a work in progress, and I've been sanctified greatly, I would have gotten out of my car uh, last year. No. Um, But I am a work in progress. And God continuously shows me that. But the standard that He raises for me here is even greater. Because he's asking me not only to be understanding of this individual, but to pay for his meal. (laughs) You know, I didn't do that, by the way. 
he says, let them have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, this is something that the Roman military required of Jewish people. They could call on any Jewish person to carry their military equipment for one mile. But Jesus says if they so do, then you go two miles. Go that extra mile for them. And to him who asks of you, from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Asking us to be generous people in the sight of a need. All of this has been given to us to re-clarify the teaching of the religious leaders and to redefine it and to set the bar so much higher than it had been set at that period of time. Showing us and illustrating and demonstrating for each and every one of us how far short we actually fall of the standards in which God has set down. The perfection in which He had uh, displayed and manifested for us. Driving us to understand our need for a Savior in Christ. But it also shows me that living in the current culture, in the current world in which I live, the standard of my society is not the standard of morality that I am to live by. For the standard of morality that God has set for us 2,000 years ago is still the standard of morality for us today. And many Christians want to diminish that standard. And they do so thinking that they have theological reasoning to do that. Number one, we want to eliminate anything in the Christian faith that is offensive to anyone in the world. Hey, it was, Jesus was offended to the fallen world and he did not apologize for that and he did not lower his standards due to that. But secondly, we want to lower that standards in belief that we can expand the kingdom of God. If we become like the world, then we can reach the world around us. Again, Jesus did not do that. He became a physical man to allow the world to interact with him, but he never left the standard of righteousness sets forth in the Bible. If he would have done so, his sacrifice on the cross would have been negated. So we as believers in the kingdom of heaven, we need to live in a new way of life. We need to live at a higher standard, not because we're self-righteous and arrogant and and parade ourselves as better than those who are around us, but for the purpose of being salt and light onto this world. That is the way we're going to affect this world for change. We simply cannot be a thermometer in this world. We must be a thermostat. We must have the ability to change the temperature of our society. And we will never do so by becoming like the world or lessening the moral standards of the Scriptures. We'll never accomplish what we hope to accomplish, even though we may have all the good intentions in the world. But then Jesus goes one step farther to the real essence of what he is saying here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Is that what the Bible says? I'm sure you're familiar that the Old Testament clearly tells us to love our neighbor. For Leviticus tells us that very clearly. 
that we should love our neighbor. But does it indicate anywhere in the Old Testament that we should hate our enemy? This was an added phrase that was added by the religious leaders during the time of Jesus' first coming. And Jesus needed to eliminate this. The Jewish people were very comfortable of applying the term neighbor to anyone who was a fellow Jew. But if it became an issue of anyone outside Judaism, one who is a Gentile, they were very reluctant and felt no need to love that person in such a way. In fact, you know as well as I do that when Jesus was challenged on this point, he was challenged by the religious leaders because they wanted him to define who their neighbor was. And of course, he then went in in Luke's gospel to give us the incredible illustration of the Good Samaritan. But Jesus said, this is what you have been taught. And I think some Christians in some way have unfortunately adopted a similar attitude. That I'm to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but for those in the world, well, excuse my French, but to hell with them. Many Christians, unfortunately, carry themselves with such an attitude. And it is completely contrary to the Christianity of the Scriptures. We have developed a subculture here in the United States of America that is dissipating, by the way. It is, it is quickly being uh, dispelled. But Christians for a long time ha- uh, hid themselves from the interaction of the, uh, with the world in this subculture, and they became very pharisaical while hiding in this subculture towards the world. We became very judgmental, very critical, We became very prideful, very arrogant, and certainly we became very unloving. But Jesus says very clearly that that isn't to be the case. Raising the standard even higher, because our natural inclination from the fallen uh, nature is to hate those who hate us. But yet Jesus says, I want you to surpass that natural inclination and love those in whom hate you. Now, I can't do that in and of myself. That's an impossibility. You know, I was always amazed by Mr. Rogers. Fred Rogers. And if you haven't seen the movies made of him, about him, I'd encourage you to watch him. Watch them, because... Fred Rogers had a very unique way of loving people. He was a believer in Jesus Christ. And he often dealt with people who held worldviews contrary to his own. And yet found a way to uniquely love him. And the number of people who have been impacted by Mr. Rogers, and I'm not talking about solely his Mr. Rogers neighborhood, but him personally, is extraordinary. He felt that that was just the natural manifestation of his Christian faith, to love in such a way. And it's exceptional. I think Jesus is another, of course, ultimate picture of that love. How he loved people that were in constant, contrary uh, interaction with him. In fact, it's interesting, fun fact for you, quoting Paul Blart, Fun fact for you, 
An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth originally seems to be just simply a mandate to the judicial system in Judaism. But if you think of Christ as the fulfillment of all of the law law and of the prophets, then you would have to say that in Christ that was fulfilled too, and it was, as his death was substituted on our behalf. Very interesting little fact to consider. And the reason he died as a sacrifice on our behalf is because he loved us. So in that light, read these verses with me. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, What do you do more than the others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I think that it is imperative that we as Christians understand what it means to be a Christian going forward. We don't have any idea what 2021 is going to bring. But whatever it does bring, we are still called to be salt and light, are we not? And because we are called to be salt and light, we need to know what being salt and light looks like. It means living wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. Forgiving those who have wronged us. Loving our enemies. Turning our other cheek. Going the extra mile. Letting people see that when we are spitefully used and persecuted, that we do not retaliate as the world would retaliate upon them. I think all of us as Christians in the last six months have been challenged to our core. I think all of us have found ourselves in a situation where we see the world as us and them. And we are appalled by those who hold different worldviews than we do. But let us understand that apart from Christ, this is, these are the worldviews that the world is going to hold. And whatever control, whatever authority, whatever policy is implemented in our nation going forward, we know this, that if it's apart from God, it's going to fail, isn't it? That's just the bottom line. It's going to destroy our nation even further even though they may have all the good intentions in the world. But we as Christians, even in the wake of that, need to continue being that salt and light because as the darkness grows darker around us, our light should be even brighter to those that we may continue what Jesus begun, and that is to seek and to save those who are lost. But we're never going to accomplish that if we become like the world to reach the world. We're never going to accomplish this if we begin to compromise 
and appease the world by eliminating portions of Scripture that they don't find attractive, beneficial, or helpful in their progressive endeavors. Because we know that the moment we became Christians, we subjected ourselves to a higher governing authority than any authority here in this world. And when we identify ourselves as citizens, do we often identify our citizenship as simply American or do we see our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and does that surpass our citizenship here in the United States of America? We have responsibilities to vote biblically. We have been given the blessed privilege of letting our voice be known in the political arena. We should. But ultimately, as Paul saw himself no longer as a Jew and as a Pharisee or as a Roman citizen, but he saw himself as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, commissioned with the reconciliation of this world back onto God. And some of that reconciliation doesn't even have to be with people in the world apart from our circle of influence. Some of us have in our own families individuals who do not know the Lord, that need the Lord. And the way we're going to win them to Jesus Christ is by becoming the men and women God has called us to be. Now, if the righteousness in which we display is offensive to them, well, so be it. But if they find us offensive by the haughtiness and the pride and the self-righteousness and the lack of humility and the critical heart, then shame on us. Because ultimately we are to reflect the glory of God in this fallen world. I am in awe when I read these passages. I often, after studying them for many hours during the week, have to just sit alone and say, Lord, forgive me for how far short I have fallen from the standard in which you have expressed. Help me to be the man, the husband, the father that you have called me to be, Lord. Help me to be this light and salt in this dark world. The world is dying around us and the Christian church doesn't seem to care or mind it one bit. Some have even gone as far as to say the world is now getting what it deserves. I'd be very careful in that attitude if I were you because it says in Scripture very clearly that vengeance is His and His alone. We need to redefine ourselves for 2021. To be able to deal with whatever comes down the pipe next, right? We never thought we'd get murder hornets in 2020. We have no idea what we're going to experience, killer possums in 2021. But the reason we've embarked on this series is to remind us again of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The standard in which God has stated to allow it to speak to our hearts and to show us how far we have fallen. And this has been the standard from the very beginning. What the law could not do only could be accomplished through Christ who has given us a new heart to do so. See, the new life in which Jesus Christ has given us is not meant to be lived for our personal self-fulfillment. Do we realize that? 
The new life that Jesus Christ has given us is meant to glorify Him, allow us to glorify Him in all that we do. Can we say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me? This is a standard of Christianity that has been lost, that we need to regain if we are going to be effective as salt and light in this world.